hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... A lot of stuff has been lost and not found again. People actually do not come and pick up. So we have unlimited supply of umbrellas and and winter hats and gloves and like things. One person's trash is another person's treasure. So this week we decided to roll up our sleeves and get dirty. We're going to stop by a shop set up by Vienna's trash collectors to sell wares found during their rounds. Head over to Istanbul to meet the city's junk dealers contributing to the circular economy of this metropolis and discover why the Western Balkans have decided to take visual pollution seriously and clean up what's within our eyesights. That's all ahead right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to this week's programme. Now, we're going to start today in Austria's capital, Vienna, to check in with the city's most popular council department, the rubbish collectors. Now, there are good reasons behind their admiration by the public. They are efficient, friendly, and on top of all that, they run two stores selling some of the stuff that comes into their collection system, either via donations or picked up directly from the streets. The scheme has proved to be a booming success, and we dispatched Monocle's Alexei Korolyov to investigate. It's quite a treasure to behold. It's a big store. We got around 900 uh, meters squared. Vienna's waste management department, the MA48, is famous for its openness to the public, its good manners. My name is Markus Strunert. A pleasure. And its good ideas. We got everything from clothes, furniture, um, DVDs, CDs, long plays. We got um, sports equipment. We got electronic stuff with warranty, everything you need. The MA48 opened its first Tandler store, that's Austrian-German for junk dealer, in 2015, followed by a second one this summer. Yeah, so how does this stuff get here? Our main source are the citizens of Vienna. Nicola Hermann is a spokesperson for the MA48. We have Mistplätze, so-called. Um, those are the separate collection centers where people can bring their waste. Mm-hmm. Besides that, we have uh, the lost and found service also in our department. So a lot of stuff has been lost and not found again. People actually do not come and pick up. So we have unlimited supply of umbrellas and (laughs) (laughs) and winter hats and gloves and like things yeah and then we have a couple corporations where we directly get donations with Wiener Wohnen for example the social housing when they clean out the basements then we get the stuff and things like that so actually when we built this shop it was a possibility to give an alternative route to things that somehow fall out of the system but aren't classified as waste yet. Because before we did just not have any different possibility besides burning it. People coming here, there's quite a lot of people this morning. What 
Is your impression, what are they looking for usually? Or is treasure. It just like treasure. <laughs> just treasure. It's like a flea market. Yeah. They're looking for the, the special thing. But the I think yeah. the three main motivations for people to shop here are the environment. So there is a bubble of people who mm. just prefers to buy reused stuff for environmental reasons. Then there's a bubble of people that comes for lower prices because, of course, since the stuff has been given to us for free, we are able to also sell the stuff at a lower price point than new things. And then the third big motivation is to just find something unique. So those are the treasure hunters because they don't want to buy the furniture from Ikea that runs in the season or at H&M, but they look for something that not everybody has right now. But the city of Vienna isn't in this for the money, Nicola Hermann says. It has a higher aim. We also want to work against the stigma, you know. A lot of people think it's just for poor people and with, when you buy secondhand, it means that you cannot afford first-hand products. There's now this shift where a lot of people do it for the environment. But then a lot of people also say, like, I would buy secondhand, but it stinks. <laughs> I mean, the most important is to just get the people here and show them and get them in touch with the topic. And for some people, stuff works, and for some people, other stuff works. But also, we must say, we are not a flea market or an antique store or something where we try to specifically get the most revenue out of something. Our goal is to extend the period of life of a product, to keep it into the cycle mm -hmm. as long as possible. Yeah. That's our main driver. So our main driver is not to, to make the biggest revenue out of it, which makes it a lot easier, of course. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Our thanks to Monocle's Alexei Korolev there. This is The Urbanist. Next, we turn our focus to a different kind of trash. City buses in many places have come to look more and more like mobile billboards. Simple banner adverts on the sides are no longer enough when you can wrap the vehicle in plastic, promoting food, fashion, films or anything else you fancy. Never mind if passengers can no longer see clearly out of the windows. But two capitals in the Western Balkans have just brought that commercial caper to a screeching halt. The mayors of both Belgrade and Zagreb have separately decreed that their public transport fleets will no longer be adorned by adverts, sparing the eyes of residents to this huge level of visual pollution. So what's behind the billboard ban? Monocle's man in the region, Guy Delorney, can tell us more. A city's public transport fleet can be an important part of its identity, and that includes the colour you paint them. If I say London, then red double-decker buses and black taxis will probably be among the first things that pop into your mind. And now, if I say New York, you'll be thinking about yellow cabs. But in the capital cities of the former Yugoslavia, they've been a little bit careless with their transport branding. Buses and trams in these parts are just as likely to be wrapped in an ad as painted in a civic pride-boosting livery. But hey, who wouldn't want to jump on the number six in Ljubljana when basketball star Luka Doncic is next to the door, brandishing a humongous processed meat sandwich? 
or ride on a Zagreb tram dressed up like a gigantic roast chicken, or for that matter, board the Belgrade trolleybus wrapped up to look like a KLM plane. I'll tell you who. Zoran Bukvic from the Belgrade campaign group Nedavimo Beograd. Before, it was total chaos and uh, you couldn't see when you were traveling by the bus or by tram or by trolley, you couldn't see what station you were on. It, it was for, totally confusing for uh, passengers. So now I think it's a good thing to remove those adverts from buses. As you were campaigning for it, what was your motivation for, for wanting these adverts to be removed in the first place? You want to know what station you are going to get out. You know, you cannot see through that window with the advert. You cannot see on which part of the city you are on. You know, it's, it's annoying. So we wanted to remove it because, especially because of that. You know, and, and some people even feel sick, you know, when they're, they're in such environment, you know, like uh, people like to look through the windows, you know, not the, the, the, that's the purpose of the windows, not to be, you know, like cover in some uh, tin can. Underneath the advertising wraps, Belgrade's transport is a bit of a mixed bag. Its ancient trams provide a distinctive soundtrack to the city streets, and though many of the buses have been renewed, the older ones raise quite a racket as well. Not so long ago, this transport fleet was a bit like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never knew which colour you were going to get. But that started to change when Militon Follich was the city architect. He asked citizens their preferred colour for Belgrade's trams, trolleys and buses. We had one really interesting uh, competition uh, between uh, four colours back then and we put it online so all the citizens of Belgrade could vote which colour would be the colour of the public transport. And interestingly enough, uh, they chose red one. And... I'm not sure if it was an instinct, you know, because they want their bus to be very visible from, you know, far away. And we did wish to have a color that is very visible from far away. And you cannot put, let's say, gray color because nobody's going to see that bus ever you know, until it comes to the, <laughs> to the station. The current regime in Belgrade City Hall is going one step further. The mayor has ordered that all external advertising should be removed from municipal transport. Coincidentally, the mayor of Croatia's capital, Zagreb, has made a similar decree. Those decisions are fully endorsed by Militon Folic. If you ask me, it, it should have happened earlier. I don't think that there is any coordination between the two cities to do so. But I think there is, in both cities, understanding of the importance of the public transport. If uh, you want to make more people use public transport, you want to make it easy to use, right? So uh, by taking off the commercials and uh, putting all the public transport in one color, it's much easier to spot a bus or a tram. The other thing is uh, visual, visual pollution of the city, because of course these uh, advertisings are uh, not unified. You know, one is red dominantly, the other one is dominantly, you know, like, I don't know, pink, the other one is you know, whatever. And if you have a lot of them all over the city, the city doesn't look so tidy and clean and so on. This is something that cities obviously make money from. I mean, the public transport, as you said, takes up the biggest chunk of the city budget. Why would a city give up what is, in essence, easy money? Being beautiful is not the most important. As, as I told you, the most important is that it's visible, right? 
and if they're covered with all these commercials, then these buses and trams are not visible from far away, and therefore less people are going to use the public transport. But anyway, um, I believe that it's not such a significant add to the budget. How much can you charge uh, for a commercial on a bus? If you put it, you know, like, uh, and you compare what you get, what you lose, I think uh, the decision is quite right. In fact, Zagreb's mayor reckons that his city only gains about half a million euros a year from having its cornflower blue buses and trams plastered with ads. That's in contrast to subsidies of more than 100 million euros that municipal funds contribute to public transport. So, everybody wins from the decommercialization of moving public space, right? Not so fast, says Zoran Bukvic. It's not much use having an aesthetically pleasing bus if the service isn't reliable. I don't think that people care too much about the color of the buses. I think they more care about whether the buses are going to come, whether they are going to be punctual and that stuff. 50% of the trips of the, of, of, in Belgrade done by one day are by public, public transport. So I think that, that it says who should, who should be given priority. And that's the, what, what, what I think public transport users would value, so basic- not the change of the color. <laughs> so basically you're saying the change of color is cosmetic and what you need is substance. Of course, we, when you can't do the necessary thing, what has to be done, you know, which is, which is something like you have in London, I think uh, it's uh, called congestion charge, right? Yeah. We need that more, even more than you because we don't have underground. And public transport cannot fly over the cars. So you, you have to give some streets, you have to give priority, you have to give uh, uh, tram lines, you know, ju- ju- just for trams, in order to have a better public transport. Perhaps one day people will talk about Belgrade's red trolley buses and Zagreb's cornflower blue trams in the same tones as the transport icons of London and New York. But in the meantime, with the advert wrap stripped, Passengers can just look forward to being able to see out of the windows. For Monocle, in Belgrade, I'm Guy Delaunay. Our thanks to Guy Delaunay, reporting from the Balkans. Finally, we're in Istanbul to explore one of the city's century-old professions, Eskiji. Found all around the city... They trail their carts through the narrow streets of the inner neighbourhoods, shouting out loud their arrival to anyone who might have unwanted clothes, books or trinkets that they would like to get rid of. Then they sell the junk to antique shops in the neighbourhood. But if you want, you can buy directly from them too. Monocle's Hannah Lysander-Smith sent us this report about her friendly neighbourhood, Eskiji. This is the sound of a Turkish eskiji coming down an Istanbul street, pushing his wooden cart in front of him. Eskiji is one of those untranslatable words, but in English, rag and bone man is the closest thing. If you're having a clear out and you're left with a pile of jumble, the eskiji will come to your rescue. When you hear his call, you can stick your head out of the window and ask him to wait, and then you can unload everything onto his cart to be sold on elsewhere. They might look unassuming, but if you look closely, you can find the story of Istanbul laid out on the Eskiji's cart. 
In this transient city, people come and go, but their things stay. Each of them a small window onto a lost Istanbul, and each Eskaji his own small museum. On a busy Saturday afternoon, I found Reshet watching over a cart laden with retro stereos, dog-eared paperbacks, plastic bangles, and old lace tablecloths. These we got from a house clearance when an old person had died. They call my friend, he comes, collects the things, and then sells them. There is a system, but self-organized. There is no tax, no records, but it is a very big sector, and legal. It's a beautiful thing, actually, although we have to work hard and walk a lot. It's really interesting. Lives are interesting. And people are interesting. If you pass an Eskaji and you see something you like, you can negotiate with them direct. Mostly, though, they sell on to antique shops. And digging around those shops is one of my favourite things to do on a lazy afternoon in Istanbul. You never know what you might find. Old postcards, trinkets, costume jewellery and vinyl records all jumbled in with antique furniture and gilt-framed paintings. In one shop, I even saw an original street sign from 1930s Germany, Adolf Hitlerstrasse. That's going to be a hard sell. But it's always more fun to go to the Eskaji with good company. And so I met up with my friend Zeynep, an Istanbul dweller of 20 years. Together, we went hunting for treasure. So we're going to go into Barish Antique, which is on a side street in Kadikoy. It's a street that's full of these kind of shops. But this one in particular specialises in paintings and mirrors. And it's just absolutely stacked up. There's just pile after pile of painting to dig through. Should we go in? Yep, let's go in. Merhaba. Merhaba. I'm really an amateur, I just look what I like, but there are like some painters that I know, I'm like, you know, it may be him, because he's famous, like, I'll remember the name too, but he's famous with his puppies. Bu, şey kim, biliyor musunuz? İmzası mı var? Efendim? İmzası mı? İmzası yok galiba. Var, var, var. Yok, Hilmi bir şey. Barish Hoca opened his shop 20 years ago and despite Turkey's current economic crisis he says that business is still good. He selects the best pieces from the Eskaji and sells them on to a discerning clientele. Most of them are Turks but this year a new type of customer has arrived. Yeni gelenler yanlarını da getirirler ya. He's like, did, I said, did, did they bring anything? Because he said that the Russians and the Ukrainians are really coming in massive numbers. They're not living in Istanbul at the moment, but they find me and they're really interested. And I said, do they bring anything? He's like, well, no, because they're coming on plane. What can they bring? Those who are really well off can afford the stuff that I'm selling. I mean, those who just really fled here and unable to pay their rent, you know, they're off my scale. But those who have money, who come here with money, they're really interested. There's a circularity here. People fleeing to Turkey from Russia and Ukraine are coming to Istanbul's antique shops to furnish their new homes. Often, the very things that they buy were left behind by people who themselves fled Turkey. Since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire a century ago, most of the country's minority populations, Christian Greeks and Armenians and Jews among them, 
have been forced out through deportation and pogroms. The way that they had to leave Turkey was sudden. They were not allowed to take their belongings. There's a very famous saying among the Greek minority, 20 kilos, 20 dollars, 1950s. They were only allowed to take 20 kilos with 20 dollars. So they had to leave their homes. It was, everything was looted, basically. And funny enough, the junk stores, the antiquity shops, are generally where the minorities lived. One is Balat, very Jewish uh, neighborhood it was once. Kadıköy, where we are, was a mixture of Armenians and Greeks. If a painting has, like, women's dresses, not in chadors, veils, but, you know, in dresses with their children. A family having a dinner in their living room. So you can look at those things and say, okay, this is not coming from a Muslim house. There are signs, basically. Yeah, there are signs, yeah, there are signs. You can't tell, it's just, you know, because the way that the houses, the decoration of the houses were different. The cycle continues. Back in 2016, after a failed coup against President Erdogan, many of Istanbul's foreigners left, the English teachers, nannies and backpackers. Journalists stayed, and I remember that time well. In the foreigners' groups on Facebook, people were giving away all of their furniture for free. Now, it will be circulating in the city, another echo of a recent lost past. For Monocle 24 in Istanbul, I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Well, what a rubbish show that was. But seriously, the notion of rubbish is being changed as we speak because people are realising that many of the things they place in their bins, they discard, are actually able to be reused able to go back into the system to be chopped up and made into other things or just left alone and and recycled into other people's homes and offices and their lives. But the problem is that we will only do this if we have some confidence about where all our stuff is going. If you look at the simple issue of recycling, many of us are very good at putting our paper and our plastic into separate bags and sending it off to the local council or having it collected to make sure that it does get hopefully reused and remade into other things. But then we read stories and reports of clothes, of of rubbish being shipped to other nations, ending up on other people's shorelines, and it drains the confidence from people. So one of the main things that city councils need to do is to make sure that when these processes begin in their cities that there's some transparency, that people understand where things are actually going to end up. Because then, once that happens, everybody's on board. And it was striking before we made the show, I looked at many of the websites of metropolitan authorities around the world, and it's very murky where our things are going. I know from personal experience these days that when we go to a local dump in our neighbourhood where you get rid of bigger things that people are very good about making sure that they don't smash things up that could go to another home, that they want to do their best, and that they're often getting rid of things which are slightly toxic, paint and all sorts of materials. So again, there's a notion of confidence that needs to be added. And we've seen best practices here today, and it's great that many of the best practices come from cities where you may not think of them being pioneers in sustainability or in clean living, But they are because they've stuck with the notion we said at the beginning of this show that one person's junk is another person's treasure. 
Well, enough trashy talk, because that is all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's programme was produced by Carlos Rebello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And if you want to find more urbanism news, remember to be a subscriber to Monocle magazine, where we run lots of great stories every single issue. And now, to play you out this week, here's Shirley Davis and the Silverbacks with Take Out the Trash. Thank you for listening, city lovers. You may-